Legends once told of a podcast lost now in the sea of time. These ancient recordings spoke of games and the arcane art of HTML5. Today, Jeff Blair and Matt Hackett bring these words back to life. It is lost cast, and may your ears receive it. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 106. I'm Matt. I'm Jeff. Today, we are going to talk a little bit about Mac versus Windows and some of the kind of like setup stuff we talked a little bit about before. This is a little bit more specific and involves uh, some hardware, some of the problems and solutions uh, that I've been having recently. And then you are going to talk a little bit about ECS. Entity component something. <laughs> That's how you should call the article. You're writing an article about it and you're like, entity component something? Something? You're like, I'm an expert on this subject, although I don't know what the S stands for. Hmm. Um, and then if we get time, we won't have time, but if we do, we'll talk about Project Skirmish. Um, right off the bat, though, I wanted to mention a couple of things that uh, we've been failing to mention uh, early on, which one of them is uh, Cheers Philip recently mentioned. I think it was Lost Cast 104. Uh, we used that silence filter, and I think it was a little bit too harsh, is what uh, Philip was saying. So I didn't actually use it in 105. I probably won't use it in 106, uh, because I think it uh, removed some of the kind of conversational balance. You know, like people have pauses when they speak, and people are allowed to breathe, that kind of thing. Isn't it something you could just set a threshold for, you know? So it's like, yeah, you know, it's like a second of silence. It's okay. A natural pause and a breath. Yeah, I, I'm nervous about using it, though, just in general. Uh, I'm surprised I actually just did that one without listening to the whole damn thing. But I... Because uh, you're lazy. <laughs> I'm worried about it also, uh, like, cutting parts of the conversation out. And also, um, I think it was mentioned that some of the music at the end, Joshua Morris's music, was touched as well. And I don't want that at all. Hmm. Um, I don't know. It's kind of complicated because if I want to take it out and do it just on the vocals, you know, then it's... I don't know. It's It becomes much harder and it's no longer the seamless thing i can use but anyway um more on that in the future perhaps um also i'm not going to try to pronounce the full name because i will screw it up but uh yang on twitter was asking about uh including show notes in the xml data and i think someone had previously asked about including it in the mp3 metadata like the id3 tags or whatever and that's much harder so that one i've kind of had in the back burner like thinking about it but including it in the show notes in the xml data um see that's really useful because we don't really know necessarily how everyone consumes the podcast uh and so knowing that the xml data uh, the show notes in there would be good is is helpful so uh, i'll look into that that one should be an easier problem to solve uh, uh is it the mp3 something you could do through your fancy command line magic yeah maybe i use uh lame and uh i use as ffmpeg but that's mostly for video though it does audio as well there are all these really fancy awesome powerful command line tools i use for massaging lost cast and give, give lost cast a little back rub from the command line uh so yeah that might be possibility i haven't really looked into that um but Speaking it's, of, know, it's kind of complicated because it's in markdown like on the on the blog and then i have to like convert that somehow but anyway yeah i think that um that's just kind of due for a refresh probably yeah oh man the whole the whole other reasons uh, as well yeah the whole website, it's current, like, oh, we've talked about this before, just super briefly. It's like, I'm stuck on node 0.8 because of, uh, however, our website works. It's called Manor. I'll probably put that in the show notes. It's actually open source if you want to look at how our website works. Yeah, um, it's uh, actually like the, the node 0.8 thing is a 
crappy little utility I wrote that uploads <laughs> to S3, and that's the reason that it's stuck on 0.8. It's because I haven't ever gotten around to making that tool work with Node 10. Yeah. So it's funny. It doesn't. Yeah. It's not really relevant. Like it. It doesn't matter. I, I use Node so rarely these days that it, I don't mind that I'm behind. And yeah. I think you've actually got a project. Um, is Blacksmith on GitHub as well? Metalsmith. Metalsmith. What did I get? Blacksmith. Metalsmith. Is that on um, GitHub? It is. Yeah. Okay, I'll put a I link think, to uh, that. Metalsmith.io. It's a static site generator. Um, it's kind of along the same lines as Jekyll, but it's, I think, more powerful and also node-based. So node-based. Oh man, and you know, um, Jekyll is on Ruby, which neither one of us knows at all. Yeah. No. Nope. I don't, nope. Um, no, sir. I don't see. like it. <laughs> you are the horse. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. Um. So also, I wanted to talk real briefly about something else, too. We tend to be uh, down on ourselves. We've had a couple of deprecasts, right? <laughs> At least two that I can think of, or the whole podcast was called that. And I think that might be kind of like leftover stuff, you know? I remember, especially around, say, 2010, where we weren't really... Um, we were just starting the company, and we're like, we don't know much, but we want to make games. Help us, you know? <laughs> we were very down on ourselves, Um and we, and we deprecate ourselves a lot. And uh, I saw a comment, uh, much appreciated, from Jay on, uh, I think it was the most recent podcast, 105. And uh, I was asking, like, if you're going to be downers about the next game, might that be a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know? And um, I used a term when I replied that I've been kind of, I've been kind of wanting to come up with a term we can use instead of like, you know, we suck and it'll be okay, I guess. Like, we'll make a game and, you know, bleh. Like we're so like Debbie Downers, you know, we need something else. We need, cause like we have the capacity to be confident, right? Like we, we believe in ourselves where we wouldn't have quit our jobs and, you know, put our wallets on the line and that kind of thing. Like we, we are relatively confident. We're optimistic, you know, like we have high hopes for the future. So we need to try to capture some of that and bring that into the podcast and hopefully spread it because that's a reason, uh, like when we did the, uh, the Lost Cast listener survey, that's a reason a lot of our listeners listen is to get closer to game dev and to get motivated and to get inspired. And uh, I want to capture that and try to try to focus on that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think that, you know, if you listen to this podcast with any regularity, uh, you will probably understand that being an entrepreneur, not just in game dev, but in any sense is... An emotional roller coaster of yeah <laughs> craziness, you know. And uh, there are times when you're on top of the world, and there's times when you're not. And not uh, so and much. <laughs> you and I, in particular, tend to be like highly critical of ourselves. Yes. And I think that sometimes that can come across as you know not being confident or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it is just kind of us poking fun at ourselves and trying to you know not take ourselves too seriously. Yeah, that's the thing. I know we can sound serious sometimes, but like I'm serious about n- like 10% of the time. Like almost <laughs> almost always I'm I'm just joking around. You can be like, "Matt, shut up. That was crap." And I'd be like, "Yeah. Yeah, you're right." <laughs> you know. Um, but I think the term I used was uh cautiously confident. I don't know if that'll stick. Cautiously like, competent or confident? <laughs> cautiously competent. <laughs> Barely competent. How about that? Yes. Yeah. Oh, cautiously confident. Like I can do it but I'm careful or maybe yes. carefully confident. I don't know. Something along those lines where you, like the next game, we're making our next games, project skirmish. We know we can do it. We know it'll come out. We know it'll be decent, like <laughs> some measurement of <laughs> quality. Right. I think that the, uh, the big hesitations we have and the reason that we seem a little down on ourselves is that um, the marketing aspect is, is an area where 
things are tough and you know a lot of yeah games that are well made and are fun and interesting don't get the necessary attention that that they deserve because yeah they just don't make it into the public eye you know well enough and i think that's the part that you and i are, are scared about right is we feel like we did some marketing stuff with the wizard's lizard and you know we did an okay job i guess but i think <laughs> it still kind of feels like we got lucky luck it feels like luck yeah it doesn't feel repeatable right at least not yet Right, and so that's kind of where our hesitation comes from, is like, yeah, we're going to sit down and we're going to make a game that we believe in and we think is fun, and hopefully other people will enjoy too, but we're just not sure if we're going to be able to, be able to repeat that you know, relative marketing success. Yeah, I remain uh, pretty firm that we're not going to meet the sales of a Wizard's Lizard. I would love to be wrong, right? It seems like it's not in the cards just based on the data that we have and speculation if we're being honest but I, I am pretty confident that the game will be simple and fun and there will be like good stuff there you know like a lot of enjoyable stuff will come out of that game i think it'll be a good experience yeah well we'll see maybe uh, we will surprise ourselves and knock it out of the park yeah maybe um so that, that like, you, like what you were saying uh some games are really good and they don't get the sales right um, and so we use something called Steam Charts, which kind of just looks at the gameplay data to see who's playing what games when. And it's really valuable because we know what a Wizard's Lizard sales are. And actually, we've been very open with those numbers. So you, the listener, also knows what those sales numbers are. And so what you can do is you can go to Steam Charts, and I'll put a link in the show notes. You can look at a Wizard's Lizard, and you can compare it to other games. And you can be like, oh, hey, this game has twice as many players as a Wizard's Lizard. So it's probably, you know, rough ballpark. It's probably sold about twice as many, you know. And I'll see these games, especially indie games, <clears throat> that are out there that are made by awesome developers. For example, uh, Shell Games made a game called In Me Mind. I think I've mentioned it briefly on the podcast before. It's a really good retro shooter. It has like you know, classic gameplay. It's just a standard shooter, but it has a twist. And the twist being that uh, you have your standard just shoot. You can move and shoot. Uh, side-scrolling shooter, kind of like uh, Gradius or uh, R-Type. Or but you have another button. Yeah. Uh, another button lets you possess any ship in the game, right? That's awesome. That's a really cool feature. And I thought that was a unique hook about the game. And I've played it. I recommend it. I think it's good. And when you look at Steam charts, it hasn't sold nearly as well as a Wizard's Lizard. And this is from Jesse Shell's company, who's like, this guy can game design circles around us, you know? Like, uh, a book of lenses is something that I've learned a lot from. I recommend it really highly. Uh, it's really taught the industry a lot. And the game's... Like, I, I would probably say Enemy Mind is a more solid game than a Wizard's Lizard in a lot of ways, but the sales aren't there, you know? So you see this disparity sometimes between the quality of a game and the reality of it in the market. And that's, um, that's intimidating, you know? I think something to remember, though, is that Steam Charts is not a super accurate representation uh, of sales data. It's that's a good point, yeah. And a representation of people currently playing the game in a historical graph of people like how many people have been playing the game at peak times yeah um and that doesn't necessarily always line up with sales no and that's a good point the reason i say that is because one we know we've heard from many sources that a lot of people buy steam games and don't play them yep. <laughs> so yeah. and i think a lot of people buy games almost as an emotional response right you know it's like oh man this game sounds awesome i know i've done this i've purchased games 
that I have not even downloaded on Steam. They're sitting <laughs> in my library and I've never played them. So, you know, that's a sale that's not going to show up on Steam charts, essentially. Right. Yeah. So it's like a filter. It's definitely not a one-to-one ratio, you know, and, you know, Enemy Mind could have sold uh, 10 times more than Wizards Lizard. We honestly don't know. But when right. you look at the play times, that's the only data that we have. And that data is a third party. It could be deeply flawed. It could be just straight up wrong, you know, Well, it comes, it comes from Steam's data itself. I mean, Steam publishes the numbers and Steam charts just aggregates it. So... It's right, like but it'll, it'll pull that data in on an interval, right? And if it's, let's say, oh, whoops, like that game's had a bug in it, you know, something's wrong with the data and we haven't updated it for three months. Like, that's a yeah, possibility. that's true. That's true. Um, the other thing that actually came up very recently is that we we had got some communication from another developer, an indie developer, who had a claim to make a certain number of sales. Right. And uh, we looked at their Steam chart data and their data wasn't that much higher than ours, but their sales numbers were you know, five times ours or more. Yeah. So, you know, assuming all that is true, that Steam Charts doesn't necessarily have a good indication of sales numbers. Yeah, it's a useful tool to use, but you should keep in mind it's really rough. You know, it it just gives you a a rough estimate. It's not going to be exact or anything. Right. Although, I mean, you do look at games like, you know, I don't know, Binding of Isaac, and it has, you know, like 12,000 concurrent players, so... 65,000 was the uh, the most at one time. <laughs> Crazy. Oh, can you imagine? I think it, it can give you a good baseline, right? Like, you can say, like, okay, yeah. this game has, you know, 50 concurrent players for the last six months. That must mean that they have at least X sales. Right. But it could be more because there could be a lot of people that purchased it on a whim and have never played it. Yeah, totally. Anywho. Anywho. So uh, that's why we're nervous about the next game. But it's going to be fun, right, Jeff? It's going to be action-packed. It's going to be, like, skill-based. And, like, oh, man, I'm going to run in and kill some goblins, have some fun for a bit. Like Solid that, yeah. gameplay. Right, Jeff? Right? Leading the right? witness? Jeff? Promise right now. Promise. Say, like say a blood oath. <laughs> Pinky swear. Oh. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about Mac versus Windows. And this will probably only be, hopefully, just about half the podcast. Um but man, what a uh, what a constant problem just throughout like my entire development history, you know. And uh, I guess when I started at Yahoo, I, I went you know whole hog into Mac, and I haven't really looked back. And then we've talked recently about how um, Windows is where people game. You know, people just don't game as much on Mac. It's something like a ninety plus percent market share on Windows. And so I wanted to get closer to that. And I don't really have uh, all I have is this Ultrabook we got from. Uh, um, Intel a while ago and it's it's super awesome but I'm kind of like using it as a media PC and it's also like the plugs aren't all there it, it just has some issues and I don't see it as like a real gaming machine it's more of like a laptop you can use for like you know portable dev and crap and so I thought it was time you know it's time to get a Windows machine it's time to put myself closer to gamers and there were also some real development reasons uh, I wanted to get into it a couple of them were um, I've been talking a little bit about how I've been studying controlpaint.com and their uh, digital uh, painting videos. And there's all kinds of really great recommendations that come up out of that. And um, so a couple of them are hardware-based. There's some tablet stuff um, for when I'm drawing and stuff. And so a big one is uh, I've got a Wacom Cintiq 12WX, which is old as dirt at this point, and it's so outdated that I cannot actually get any drivers to work on my Mac anymore, which sucks. Really? And it's it's not... Yeah, it's terrible, right? It's not a deal-breaker because you can still use it. Like, when I have the the t- uh, pen on the tablet, it still detects it. You can still do um, stuff like, you know, drawing. 
the pressure sensitivity <laughs> actually still works. But when you go into the hardware settings, and normally it's like, uh, oh, you can modify the sensitivity, you can set these hotkeys, you can alter, uh, there's buttons actually on the pen itself that you can set. Uh, all kinds of really great configurable stuff that I just don't have access to anymore, and I don't know what the problem is. I've restarted, I've reinstalled the drivers, blah, blah, blah. Uh, tried on Windows, works like a charm, first thing, all my configuration is back. That's pretty big, right? Nice. Um, in addition, a lot of uh, the art that I make has this thing, uh, a step called line art. And this isn't always true for all digital painters. Like, sometimes you go straight to just drawing uh, in value, or you draw with the form or the mass of things. I like to draw with lines in general. And you can definitely see this in, like, a Wizard's Lizard and uh, most of the other games that we've done, because it's kind of been our style for a while. And with line art, you want it to be smooth and crisp and look nice, usually, if that's the style you're going for. I, I'm, that's the style I'm going for. And so to get those smooth lines without having to, like, let's say I'm drawing, say, the top of a head, and I want it to look nice and round like a head would look, right? And my hands, me being this meatbag human thing, like, <laughs> my hands are shaky, my lines are kind of crappy, and they get better as you practice more, and they've, they've been getting better. But there are tools to help you with that. For example, uh, Illustrator has these really great smoothing algorithms. So you'll draw a line and there's various, you know, you can set it how much uh, you want it to smooth and what kind of smoothing you want. And man, it just, it makes your lines look so much better. And you spend so much less time like draw a line, undo, draw a line, undo, draw a line, undo. You know, I hate yeah. that. And with Illustrator, it's more like draw a line. Ooh, <laughs> lovely line. <laughs> I'm liking so that a lot. Are you drawing in Illustrator now and not Photoshop? So it, that's the thing. It makes for this really clunky uh, kind of, approach for me because I, I will do a sketch in Photoshop because I'm most comfortable in Photoshop and to me it's the closest to just what I'm traditionally used to just drawing on pen and paper so I will start with a sketch in Photoshop and then I will export the sketch to Illustrator and then I'll draw lines on top of that and then I'll export the lines back into Photoshop which is totally fine a lot of people do that uh, sometimes what people do is sketch in Photoshop bring it into Illustrator do everything there and maybe just leave it in Illustrator or bring it back just for coloring or just for touch-ups in Photoshop. Um, the two programs are used in tandem a lot. Right. But I, I don't know. The more moving parts I have, the less happy I am, you know? And on Control Paint, uh, it was recommended by Matt Core this program called Lazy Nizumi, which is this really cheap, uh, it's like 10 bucks or something. I'll put a link in the show notes if anyone's interested. It's uh, basically a line smoothing program. What it does is it captures the input from your tablet and it's not just the line smoothing, which already is enough for me. I really want that. There's also um, some really great pen sensitivity stuff. You can set like, you know, when I barely touch it, I want that to be very strong. Or if I'm barely touching, I want that to be really barely touching. It just, it gives you more control over the the depth of the, um, the pressure with the pen. And I'm um, assuming this is a Windows only tool? This is Windows only. Like, I would, if anyone knows any better, please do let us know in the comments. Uh, this just goes from my experience of looking around and watching videos, reading some articles and stuff. Um, I'd love to be wrong. Um, there was some other stuff too, like um, uh, we were doing these Let's Play videos. Actually, we did, uh, last week, we did our um, Project Skirmish video four, which I think went really well. One of the best ones yet. Yeah. And you do that. You're pretty much the one driving uh, because you've got, you know, a decent PC. And up until now, I haven't had one. And so, like, I tried it on my Mac. I tried using Open Broadcaster. I tried various other things. And the bottom line is just too slow. And additionally, there aren't all these great audio options on Mac, which is baffling. I know we've talked about that before. Um, so the stuff starts to add up, you know. There's, like, I really, like, pretty much everything revolving around Photoshop and all my graphics stuff, it, it wants to be on Windows these days. 
and all the gaming stuff wants to be on Windows. And uh, the, also the podcasting stuff, like that can be on Windows as well. Um, but so I made this little graph, like this matrix, where I was like comparing the two operating systems. And there's like all the important things to me, you know? And so like game development is possible on both, but because of our stack, it's easier on Mac. And that's basically because of the bash terminal. But that brings up a whole ball of wax right there, right? Like, okay, Jeff, right now, you no longer have bash terminal. <laughs> Would you just cry? I don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, and again, like all this stuff could just be me not knowing about various solutions. So feel free to let me know. Um, actually, Rich Davey uh, had some really great suggestions on uh, some of the software he likes to use on Windows. And I've been trying some of that stuff out. Um, but yeah, it basically, like I, I came up with this matrix where it's like, here's the things that Mac does well. Here's the things that Windows does well. And it's really obnoxious because it's like an even 50-50 split almost you know like tablet controls and the smooth lines and making streamable videos and gaming and dev and all that stuff so uh, basically i came to the conclusion that i kind of needed both operating systems in tandem to be able to do everything that i want to do right now and for me seamless workflow is critical because like i remember i talked to i don't know probably around somewhere around um episode 100 we had i think it was the setup is where i was probably talking about this but it was basically like i had uh Last year, my situation was I'd be on my computer. I, mean, I got my 24-inch widescreen and my, my laptop right here. And if I want to switch over to the tablet, I'd have to unplug the monitor, my 24-inch um, widescreen, and then plug in my little Cintiq. And that sounds like a pretty easy thing to do, but it would basically be very taxing in the end because I had to like close certain programs or else they would just flip out if they detected different monitors. Like Photoshop uh, is a good example. It would just crash and not come back. If I, if I had it open, unplugged a monitor and plugged another one in. And that was obnoxious because Photoshop is the exact program I wanted to use on the tablet. You know, it just, right. it would add like two, three, maybe 10 minutes to going from programming to, to art creating. And it was enough to just kill me, you know, like right. flow is all about forgetting about you as a human and your stupid flappy arms and typing on these <laughs> stupid keyboards. Flow is about just being one with your work environment and you're like, oh, you're just like coasting. You're like, everything is coming out and <laughs> fluid workflow. You just, you forget about everything. And that was the exact opposite of what I needed. So solutions like, um, I think it was uh, J yeah, Jay Huckabee I mentioned on Twitter, stuff like um, Bootcamp and VMware. Those are awesome solutions. And I've, I've used, uh, I don't know if I've actually used Bootcamp, but I've definitely used VMware quite a bit. Really great if you need it in certain doses. Um, some big problems for me is like, uh, you know, when you emulate, an, especially an entire operating system, it's just going to be slower. And that's one of the big things I need, especially for gaming and the video streamings. I need that speed. Uh, and then yeah. the bootcamp thing, would that be the exact same problem with uh, just killing my flow? You know, you have to kind of reset your context and you sit there and wait a minute and you're staring at a wall and then you're like, maybe I could get something to eat or go for a walk. And then you're, you're done working. You know, it kills me, man. I think that, um, you know, part of the issue is the fact that, you know, both of us are on relatively old Mac hardware. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's certainly part of it. Um, I think that I'm on at least a two to three year old MacBook Pro and you're on, I think, an older than that MacBook Pro. Probably. Uh, granted, yours is a more powerful model. It's the 15 inch where mine's the 13. But, you know, we're years behind the cutting edge of, uh, of Mac hardware. So, I mean, it's not that surprising that we have performance frustrations. Yeah, I haven't actually looked to see what the new Macs are like. I know that they're expensive. <laughs> yeah, that's a big thing, man. Like, I probably would have preferred to just try to get like a Mac Tower. I actually yeah. saw one of those at Andrea's workplace, and they are sexy. Have you seen those things? Oh yeah, I mean, they it looks are, like a jet engine. Yeah, they're awesome. <laughs> oh, I, I just like drooling all over it, and she's like, "You're getting it wet." 
stop it. <laughs> the thing is, though, is that you really like, can't get away. It. Like, there, there's two big drawbacks uh, to the Mac Pro, I think. One is that if you're going to get a machine that powerful, unless your entire workflow is Mac-based, like you're, you know, oh, I'm a video person and I use, you know, uh, whatever the Apple, not... Um, What's is it thing? Avid or Final Cut? Yeah, Final Cut Pro. Like heavy yeah, video like, you know, processing. Yeah, your entire workflow is Apple based. Like that's great. Um, yeah. But for us, you know, you know, we need things like, you know, even just little things like OBS. The fact that it kind of works on Mac, but doesn't isn't as full featured as it as it is on Windows. Plus the right. fact that you know we're into games, and like you said before, uh, <laughs> most games are on Windows, or yeah. at least there are a large portion of games that are Windows only. Right. That's yeah. an issue. What I really want, I think, is Windows with a native Bash terminal and things like Homebrew on Mac. I just want too much. I I want the perfect marriage between Windows and Linux, which Mac is that in a lot of ways, but uh, less so when you get into gaming and less with certain hardware. So I think the big drawbacks for Mac are one is that it's more expensive relative to power. Yes. Right? Like you can build a desktop PC that's more powerful or just as powerful as a mac pro for about half the cost probably yeah uh, and the second thing is is that it still just lags in terms of software like there are, there are things that you know there are obviously things that are mac only that are great um but you know by and large there are a lot of things in our world that are windows only <laughs> like yeah. you you know obs your um tablet drivers you know those things you were just talking about yeah um there's enough stuff for us that is windows only that makes it Something we have to have. There's another one. It was uh, this really weird uh, free like shareware program that came out of um, Epic of all places. Or yeah, Epic of all places uh, called Carapace. Hope I pronounced that right. But it's basically this little um, program that lets you create uh, vanishing points. And like uh, you know, when when you're drawing, you want to have like a you know, like a horizontal line representing uh, the horizon, and it, it basically helps you out. It puts you in a 3D space, you know, and not. There's no Mac version, you know, and I wanted to try it out. And uh, I'd love for that to be part of my flow. You know, you create a little environment here, bring that into Photoshop, and you can start drawing in a 3D space, and it feels super good. Uh, and it was just, a, like, a one more thing, you know? Uh, another nail in the coffin of, like, man, I, I just don't want to be on a Mac right now. Yeah. Um, another thing that I tried is uh, Synergy, which is something I know I've talked about before because I had it set up on uh, my <laughs> ridiculous workstation when I was at Yahoo. And it was like, you know, I had Linux on the left, Mac right in front of me, and Windows on the right. And Synergy was all the way across them. And this is a program that runs kind of like in, you know, your taskbar or whatever. And it controls your mouse and your keyboard. You'll have one computer be the server and the other two are clients. And you can just like, it's so cool because you can take your mouse icon and just drag it from one desktop and like you, you exit the right side and all of a sudden you're on the monitor on the right. And it just works. And so I installed that. And uh, it's it's 10 bucks now, I think, is what they charge for it. And uh, it used to be uh, like open source and free. And uh, so I installed it and it just worked, you know, like right out of the box. And I was like, wow, this is great, you know. But when I started to try to actually work, uh, it fell hopelessly short. It was uh, just across the board. It was like, you know, when you're on a Windows machine and you open a program or you try to install something and it like kind of the whole screen either goes blank or like darkens or something. You get this little box in the middle. That's like, you're about to run a program by someone terrible. (laughs) Would you like to run this program? Yes or no. You know, those kind of windows that pop up constantly. Yep. When you're on windows. Um, 
every time that would happen, Synergy would just take a dump and I, I had no access to my mouse anymore. And it's such an infuriating screen to be at because <laughs> it's like, yes or no, Jeff? And your hands are tied behind your back. Like, no. You're like, mm, mm. <laughs> really annoying. Um, uh, and it would also just happen for no reason. I'd be sitting here just doing the normal workflow, like nothing's changed, everything's fine, I'm going from one window to the next, and then just, uh, uh, and you move your mouse to the right side, and it's just like, why, why are you not going? It was just too much. You know, it's like, hey, are you trying to get some work done? I'm going to randomly cut off your hands once in a while. How about that? It's, um, it's a really nice idea, and it works in certain cases. I found also problems with Synergy, especially related to, like, games. You know, if yeah. you're trying to play games on a Windows box where it is not the server for the, the mouse cursor, yeah. uh, for the mouse the keyboard, uh, that just doesn't go well. Yes. Um, because, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 what's happening is, is that it's transmitting the keyboard and mouse input across your local network which you know is relatively fast but it's never going to be as fast as the actual hardware <laughs> connected to the device yeah the other thing i noticed is uh just the client running on the windows computer it uh prevented the screensaver ever from kicking in so i did that thing where like my tablet was on overnight and that makes me nervous because like that's an expensive piece of hardware and any burn in on that would kill it because like it you know i'm looking at the pixels like i right. i've actually got burn in on my widescreen right now i just haven't replaced it and like yeah you know <laughs> you can live with it it's in the corner it's like it's not usually what i'm looking at but like the tablet it's all you know i'm pixel pushing when i'm on the tablet like i need to know the pixels are good so that was kind of frustrating uh yeah i would have been less frustrated if it was still free but it being a paid thing i'm like it's paid and worse <laughs> how is this possible anyway, yeah uh and then last but not least you suggested a kvm which is a uh a switch like you basically plug some usb stuff into it you can uh, depending on the kvm you can also do like audio or your monitor and then uh either through a hotkey like say um you can sometimes configure it you can say like hit scroll lock twice and the hardware will be like oh you want to switch and it'll switch the connection from your windows to your mac so basically it's like a way of sharing hardware and uh, I actually just got that in the mail today, so I haven't had a chance to try that out yet. But uh, I don't know. I, the only thing I'm thinking that might not be the best is, you know how it is. It sucks sharing uh, an Apple keyboard with Windows and a Windows keyboard with Macs. Yes. It's terrible. Like, they're both just, like, they're so similar, right? Like, 90% similar. And then these Windows and Apple command buttons, yeah, it's they like kill you. <laughs> control and and. Alt and uh, Command are all in the wrong places on Windows keyboards. Yeah, and like your brain, it, it <laughs> goes against your muscle memory, and you're like, wait, uh, Command is Windows. No, com Command is Control. Oh God, it's really hard. Uh, yeah, I solve that problem. But uh, my general solution is that my Windows PC is uh, got the keyboard and the mouse and the 24-inch widescreen monitor, and that's that. And then my laptop, I just use as a laptop. Yeah, because you're a freak. You just stare at 13-inch monitor all day. I don't know how you do it. Huh? How is it done, Jeff? I don't know. <laughs> it's not that hard. I, I do like the uh, consistency, you know, regardless of whether you're sitting on a beach in Hawaii or on top of a mountain in you know, like Brazil or something. Like every, Wherever you are, you always have the exact same development experience. That's kind of nice. I do like that. That's kind of why I like it. Um, you know, I go yeah. from my desk to the couch or the bedroom and I'm just using the exact same setup uh, at least for my you know my core activity which is programming yeah um and then i almost treat my pc like an xbox you know nice 
it's like a thing that I use when I want to play games or do something very specific, you know, like right. watch Netflix on uh, on your Xbox or something, you know, maybe I'll do an OBS broadcast on my Windows box or something. But it's like, it's a gaming slash niche uh, yeah. console for me. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm hoping mine uh, will become as well once I like get integrated. Um, actually, the real last thing I wanted to talk about um, is uh, the file sharing, because I noticed that this was harder than it should have been too. On both operating systems, you can just, you know, share stuff with your network. But I noticed that, um, so like I named my uh, my towers Tails, and my MacBook is uh, Belmont. And sometimes Tails will appear in Finder, and I can just kind of navigate to it. I'm logged in as myself, and I can go through the folders, and I can put files in there. And then sometimes it's just not there. And I've, you know, I've Googled it. Uh, I don't know what to do except for restart one of the two computers to get that to happen. Here's what that you do. That sucks. Windows what? Mac networking, just forget about it. Just uh, I was afraid you were going to say forget that. Forget <laughs> about it. Use Google it. Drive. I use Google that's, Drive. That's what I, yeah, that's the yeah. conclusion I came to. And I spent some time on it. I'm like, no, this must, because like, it's it's maddening. You can, like, my computer's ready. I can touch them both at the same time. I can, <laughs> you know what I mean? I can like, look, transfer data through me. <laughs> right. Like, like, why can't it work? But it doesn't. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, I'm sure that it's possible to get them working in perfect harmony, but you know what? Who has time for that? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Google Drive um, is a million times better anyway. That's a big part of it, man. I got to say is just like the who has time for it part, you know, because I, uh, when I was messing with all this and I kept bumping up against stuff like, oh, here's a problem I got to solve and here's a problem I got to solve and this could be better and that could be better, you know? I got to the point, I think it was when Synergy was just not working for me and I was trying to draw something on this tablet and I just felt like I, I had a lap full of hardware and I wasn't able to do anything. And I'm like, screw it! <laughs> and I just wanted to turn <laughs> off the Windows machine and just get back to my Mac where I know that I can produce, you know? But I was like, yeah. no, 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 there's just a couple of problems. Like, there's like two fires to put out and I put out those fires and now there's just, you know, quote, just like a handful of pain in the ass things that I kind of need to figure out before I'll have like this really great workflow. But that is that is the goal. Well, good luck. Yeah, thanks. I'm sure I'll babble more about it in the future. But uh, enough about that. And we talked about it before. Uh, we'd love to hear any thoughts we have from uh, you, the audience, uh, especially if you have ever done anything that's kind of, you know, cross-platform, like not just Windows, not just Mac, not just Linux, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, especially if you have any advice about like what software to try or approaches that might uh, solve any of these problems I have. AKA, um, next up. please solve Matt's problems for him. <laughs> solve my problems for me, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you're going to talk about Entity Component System. Something. Yeah. yeah. Something. Oh, sorry. Sorry, yes. Ent <laughs> entity Component, sorry. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so uh, We've also talked quite a bit about this, uh, but you have, you have new stuff. Yeah, well, I kind of wanted to do like a sort of a deeper dive into some specific parts. I think we've done... Um, a couple overviews about entity component before and like you know obviously we're big fans and we've heard feedback from a lot of people that say um upon introduction to entity component that it's like radically changed the way they think about game dev oh yeah um, several occasions we've heard that and i think it's it's particularly true um for us as well you know once we kind of discovered this methodology of you know using this setup for games then uh we kind of never looked back because it just it fits so well uh, and it promotes so much reuse and things like that. Yeah, it does. But it's a huge ocean uh, of things to understand. Um, and one of the problems is that there are about 17,000 ways to skin that cat. <laughs> I mean, Entity Component 
as a concept kind of just refers to composition over inheritance, right? Yeah. Which is kind of an old programming adage anyway, right? You know, that you should prefer composition over inheritance because it's more flexible. Uh, yeah. And it it's just easier to work with. You know, you don't get these really complicated dependency chains of like, okay, you know, human inherits from mammal, which inherits from, you know, vertebrate, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and it's really rigid, you know, and then, and then you end up with things down the line that don't necessarily need to share um, functionality with their ancestors. Yeah. You get methods you don't need. Like, uh, oh, I don't need, even humans can, you know, vomit. I don't need that on this <laughs> this entity. <laughs> or you'll also get things like, oh, man, you know, the uh, the dog class or whatever. It has this really great method that I need, but I can't access it because I'm, I'm not dealing with a dog here. So you get, like, your hands are tied in certain situations, and it kind of sucks. Right. And, you know, you'd almost think that inheritance would be a great model. Because if you think about it, the real world is, is almost inheritant. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to make it a word. Inheritant, sure. Inheritant. It's the status of the inheriting of thing. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, because you think like, oh, there's like you know these classes and species and subspecies and whatnot, and it all kind of like has this tree-like structure, like almost like inheritance. Yeah, but as we know from game programming, it's mostly about fakery uh, and trying to emulate the real world in games is not a great approach. It's actually better to fake. <laughs> fake the real world to get the results that you want yeah unless you're making like a uh you know a car racing sim or uh, you're trying to you know a, a game like lunar lander only super realistic like it, unless that's your whole thing like we're doing our best to emulate reality then it is often a curated version of reality that you're going to be making. and even then like lunar lander and those kind of games are just they're highly faked physics yeah like the but actual physics aren't as much a, fun yeah, right. like if your goal is to make a fun game, you're often going to tweak those physics for fun. But if your goal is like there, there are situations where your goal is just reality, but that's probably more stuff like serious games or it's not actually a game. It's like, you know, a NASA simulation, right? Right. Where yeah. It's like, this is not made for fun. This is meant to get people Put a landing on the moon or whatever. On another planet in reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, we kind of talked to all that before, but just to give a brief overview. Um, one of the things that, that's come up recently um, is just people wanting more information about, you know, where do you go from the basic concepts of entity component, you know? Like, yeah, it's it's one of these things where you kind of like, oh, great, I understand it. And the first couple steps are really easy. Right. Um, and, it, and it feels great and stuff. But, like, with any computer system, once you kind of get into the more complicated aspects of it, it starts to get really murky. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of different ways you can handle things and you kind of bump up against edge cases where, you know, things don't necessarily work as ideally as you want them to. It can be very complicated. And that's kind of true. I mean, that's just going to be true, right? Uh, the more complicated system gets, whatever architecture you've chosen, um, you're going to run into scenarios where you're like, well, this doesn't work exactly the way I want to. I'm going to have to write this gross hack <laughs> to make it work correctly. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> like you do. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but for our particular flavor of entity component, um, one of the things that we prescribe to is, um, entities as bags of data. Yep. And, uh, just to kind of recap, that means that entities are simple JavaScript objects with data properties. They don't contain functions. They're not, uh, instances of classes or, you know, what would pass for classes in JavaScript. 
Um, can, they are literally just JavaScript object literals with yeah. properties um, being numbers, strings, arrays, and objects. Like entities are actually full featured, you know, objects with methods on them and stuff in a wizard lizard, right? But like the projects we have moving forward, they are just these, like they're basically just uh, like hash tables, basically. They're just really dumb objects. Right. Although really in, in a wizard's lizard, um, the kind of class that deals with entities is really just a wrapper on top of it to add some methods. Yeah, um, it was like moving forward, it was not hard to get away from that where we're like, oh, just the methods that were normally on entity, we're just going to create like helpers for those or but right. those, those functions live somewhere else is really all it was. And really, it promotes like a more functional programming style in that you have these, you know, bags of data that you pass to functions and the functions can do things with them instead right. of having these really complicated classes with methods and properties and hidden members and public members and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So kind of given that as a constant with our feature set, um, <clears throat> the way that you actually interact with entities is through systems. And I think that one thing that isn't always clear um, is that there isn't necessarily a one-to-one relationship between systems and components. And I use the term components really loosely too, because in our design, components can really be however you want them to be. They're really just data organization tools, right? right? So it's kind of like namespacing, I think, is how to think about our components. Um, So for example, in a wizard's lizard, we have a component called physics. And the physics component contains like X and Y velocity. Uh, it might contain gravity, not for wizard's lizard, obviously, but those are the kind of things that would it would have. Right. Um, in some of our newer games, um, those properties are actually um, separated into their own components. Like there's a velocity component whose only properties are X and Y. Yeah. There's a gravity component who has X and Y and like gravity value and then there's friction components things like that so it doesn't really matter how those components are organized uh because there's not really a one-to-one relationship uh, between those components and like a corresponding set of code so i think you know in our particular case it's better to separate them uh, because then you end up with you know one a namespaced set of components and also just more simple data structures. I mean, it's, it's a little more surface level, right? Right. Uh, and then because the physics system, you know, in our case, the physics system really doesn't change all that much. So instead of the physics system looking at this one physics component um, and, and some other components, it looks at a whole ra- uh, host of components like velocity, position, size, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, by and large, there's only going to be maybe a handful, maybe a dozen or so really core systems in your game. Um, and a lot of them are going to be reusable, hopefully. You know, we have um, like a reusable physics system and the physics system is always going to say, oh, well, let me look at X and Y velocity and update your position based on that. And then if you have gravity, I can take that into account. And if there's friction, let me take that into account, so on and so forth. Right. Um, and then you can add these components to the entities as necessary to give them these different behaviors like falling or friction or gravity or whatever. As of this talking, uh, Project Skirmish has 20 systems. 20 systems. So that's actually an interesting thing I'm going to get to. Um, I feel like there are too many systems in in Project Skirmish right now. Yeah, there could be. A lot of the systems in Project Skirmish are really just AI behaviors that 
could be handled a little differently. Yeah, there's also, uh, I think I included this behavior thing. Did I include that? No, maybe not. I had I had this behavior system in a um, <clears throat> one of the prototypes I was working on. I want to say it was either the stealth one or the one where you fly around in a jetpack. But uh, either way, that was a little bit better of a way um, to handle these behaviors. Because, yeah, the actual systems, it's, it is probably more like a dozen like you were talking about. And there's a bunch that are just behavior-based, which like, you know, spikes for example they don't have any behavior so there's no point in even having a check like hey spikes you want to do anything nope you know like it would just say it doesn't have behavior so you can kind of skip that step right um and so like the and that's one of the things about entity component is that there's like you know so many different ways to skin that cat you know one way that you could do it and and one that we've approached in the past is just having pretty much every functionality in the game be a system and that's kind of what Project Scrimmage is doing right now, um, where, you know, there's a system for each kind of AI type thing that we have going on. And, you know, every game loop, every entity is getting fed into those systems. And those systems will say, like, hey, are you a healer? Um, and the answer is, like, almost, you know, your most time it's no. Right. Unless it is a healer. And so um, that's not, I think the decision about when to make something a system and when to kind of abstract it away a little more is, you know, is this entity going to be, or is this system going to operate on most entities? Right. And so physics, that's, that's obviously true. Collision is true in a game like skirmish, like a mortal system and mortal being like dealing with health. Yeah. Um, another core system we have is called hazard and hazard deals with, um, doing damage to entities. Yeah. Um, another core piece of this whole thing is that um, the basic example for you know doing entity component is that okay you have like all these systems and then every game loop you iterate over all your entities and you feed them through each system so you have systems a b c and d and you have 20 entities in your game and so during your tick your game tick you say for you know each entity uh, run them through systems a b c and d and you know call some method on the system called like update entity or whatever yeah um that works but there's a whole host of other things that you really want to be able to support in order to get like a rich interaction between your systems and that's kind of where custom system events come into play and something that we use pretty heavily um it also allows you to abstract away some of the system work uh into more logical places and so the way that that works in general is that for example the, the collision system um, should be responsible only for detecting collisions. Right. Um, so it looks at the entity data. It looks at position and size primarily and the collision settings uh, of an entity, um, which in our case, the collision component specifies um, some things like collision group. And we use collision group to say, you know, okay, you know, bullets collide with players or players collide with ground or whatever. Right. And uh, so that system you know, each frame, well, basically uses a quad tree to figure out which entities are colliding with each other. And for two entities that match whatever the collision rules for that game happens to be, um, it raises an event, um, which we're calling a system event, or, you know, it's like a system trigger. Yeah. Um, And the way that works is it says, the collision system says, hey, I want to trigger a system event called uh, entity collision. And what happens then is then the kind of core simulation 
then feeds that trigger through every other system. So other systems then get a chance to react to uh, the fact that a collision happened. And so that's like where, that's kind of like the, the general strength of the entity component system is you have these custom systems or reusable systems like collision or whatever um, that can throw custom events that other systems can respond to. And so, for example, in physics, what physics will do is physics consumes that entity collision um, event. And so the physics subsystem doesn't really have to know anything about collision. Uh, It doesn't need to know how to detect them. It doesn't need to know anything about the collision groups uh, or anything like that. All it needs to do is say, hey, there was a collision between two entities. And because I'm the physics system, my responsibility is to see if those two entities um, should be separated because they're solid or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Or should uh, this entity hit a wall and bounce off because it has, you know, some kind of elastic properties. Um, And so the physics stuff kind of stays nicely compartmentalized into this physics system, which deals with like body solidity, 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 (laughs) um, like bounciness, friction, gravity, et cetera. Uh, And then the collision stuff stays nicely packed away in this like highly optimized, I'm just going to detect if two rectangles overlap and then I'm going to throw an event so that other things can react to that. Um, And so you kind of get this really nice system where, you know, not only can the physics system respond to the collision that happened, um, but you can also have like our hazard system. So our hazard system says, hey, if there's an entity collision, and one of these entities needs to deal damage to another entity, I can take care of that too. Uh, and so you don't, you know, you have like this this code that's very modular and piecemeal and systems can do very specific jobs without having to, you know, have this crazy game loop that's like, okay, first check for collisions and then for each collision check, see if they need to do damage to each other and should I move them apart based on separating access theorem and stuff. Oh yeah, and, and nested uh, loops really kills JavaScript. Yeah, I mean, eh, you know, the entity component system is not great on the the nested loop thing because, you know, you're iterating over all entities in an array, and then for each of those entities, you're iterating over an array of uh, of systems, and then you're passing those entities to those system functions. That abstraction, though, has helped a little bit, though, since, like you were saying earlier, you're not, like, you know, in the collision system, you detect a collision, and you're immediately in the same code as doing stuff like hazard like since right. those are separated out, there's a, it helps it a little bit there. It does, but I mean, you know, depending on the JavaScript implementation, you know, we've seen with the Wii U JavaScript uh, engine, it is not super fast at array iteration. Not as powerful as like Chrome on a modern PC kind of thing. Right. Well, and it's just, you know, it's it's different, right? Yeah. The uh, the drawing on Wii U is highly optimized and it's yeah, not fast. the bottleneck. Whereas on Chrome, the drawing is also optimized, but it, it tends to be the bottleneck for us. Yeah. But again, you know, it just depends on, on the JavaScript engine. Right. So I, I think that we've had this argument internally. I won't really say argument, actually. It's more of a discussion. But You're like, a discussion, how, jerk. How do you decide? <laughs> I'm going to ignore that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to argue with you. You're saying it was an argument. How do you decide, like, what is a full-fledged system and what is something that needs to be abstracted further? Right. Mm, yeah. That's always been a hard question to answer because, you know, you can design a game where every single piece of functionality is a system. And that has certain advantages because it keeps things like relatively simple and 
uniform, right? Everything kind of yep. follows the same rules. Um, but in AI specifically, I feel like um, it's it's harder that way because you have these entities that one end up having lots of kind of modular properties, right? If you want to really reuse your entity behaviors, um, a lot of times you're going to have, or at least you should be breaking these behaviors down as you know small as possible. Like here's a behavior that just looks for targets. Here's a uh, behavior that just chases a target. Here's a behavior that just runs away from things. Yeah. And so when you start to do that, you start to get basically system bloat where you have, you know, a whole bunch of systems and on any given iteration, they're only operating on one, maybe two entities, depending on, on what you have going on. Yeah. Um, and so that doesn't feel great. Um, I like to um, kind of have a behavior system. And Wizards Lizard has one of these. Um, it's called like a script scripting system. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and that was kind of ill-designed. I mean, conceptually, it's solid, but it has some implementation flaws that uh, I wanted to correct. Yeah, sharing was really difficult. And then just to set a script with configuration on an entity, you had to use this merge where you right. would like combine the configuration that you wanted with the default. It was a little clumsy. And it worked each, though. It works like a charm. It, yeah, it works pretty well, but uh, the reusability isn't high, which yeah. is kind of you know a big downside. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I've been working on some code for Project Skirmish. It's kind of a another pass at that kind of a system. And so it's called the behavior system. And it's kind of just a behavior stack. And the way it works is that um, you have some behaviors defined and those behaviors are almost like little mini systems. They have these little hooks, you know, update, damage, whatever, 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 right? right. And every time the behavior system triggers something, it will trigger each of those behaviors. So it's almost like, a mini <laughs> set of systems within a system, hmm. which sounds more complicated than it needs to be, but it actually works really well uh, because uh, you can create these really modular systems and they only really get executed for entities that need them or have them. And how's the sharing? Uh, the sharing is really excellent because I've managed to create some, uh, some really small uh, little pieces of AI functionality that work together harmoniously, which is another big problem that we've had, you know? And and this is actually something that's kind of an issue with entity component design in general, right? Is with the goal being these really modular, small pieces of functionality, when they do need to overlap, like how does that work? Right. And a lot of times, you know, there are things that are kind of dependent on each other or need to happen in a certain order. And I think one of those things that I, I recently solved um, is movement. So a lot of times in our code, we'll have things like, okay, first, you know, we reset the movement of an entity and then we look to see what it wants to do. And then we set its, you know, X and Y heading based on where it wants to go. Right. Uh, and that can be kind of rigid um, because then we end up with code where it's like, okay, if you're chasing, then look for the target and set your heading vector this way. Right. Otherwise, if you're running away, then set your vector this other way. And that isn't great because it kind of gives you this exclusivity where you can't do two things at once. Um, and so one of the problems I really wanted to tackle was not having this rigid system where you can only really set the movement of an entity once. Yeah. 
the example you were talking about just the other day was you want a goblin to both be able to chase the player but also avoid spikes. Right. Actually, I had this kind of crazy revelation about hazard avoidance. So um, in Project Skirmish right now, basically there is a chase functionality where the goblin will just chase the player. Yep. And he'll just make a beeline for you. And if there's spikes in the way, he'll just run right into them and die. And me like, don't care spikes. Yeah, me don't care spikes. <laughs> And thematically, you could almost argue like, yeah, goblins are dumb, but, you know, it doesn't feel great from a gameplay mechanics because then it allows the player to just kind of kite things into spikes and yeah, it's a little too overpowered. But then I had this realization that we already have code for the enemies to avoid the player. You know, yep. some some enemies chase the player, but some enemies avoid the player. And, and all the they archer kind of like will try to get near the player, but not too close. So it's like a combination of chase and uh, flee. Right. But we already have this very well-defined concept of like, okay, you look for a target, you see if you're within their radius, and if you are, you, you know, look at the separation vector between the target and yourself, and you move away from them. It's pretty easy. Yep. And it dawned on me that I, I, all I had to do was basically just run that same algorithm, but for all the spikes. And through the magic of vector addition, <laughs> you can look at several targets at once, and you can avoid all of them at the same time. And you can basically add the vectors together to get a heading that's appropriate-ish. I mean, this isn't like the most solid, best AI in, in the world, but it's a pretty good approximation of, you know, how something in the real world would want to avoid things, right? Yeah. Um, like, let's say you are, you know, the player's to your left, and so you want to run to the right. But to the right, there are spikes, and so you actually want to uh, run away from the spikes. And so, um, you know, we calculate the vectors at which you want to be running and then we add them together and then you get kind of a middle of both. So you don't yeah. run directly away from the player, but you don't, don't run directly into spikes either. You, you have these more kind of subtle tweaks and nudges. Uh, right. it, it made me think for some reason about how I walk around my house when I'm like doing chores and stuff. And I tend to walk really fast and I'll do these things where I'm like, <laughs> I'll cut corners <laughs> <laughs> very sharply you know and once yeah. in a while you do that thing I'm, I'm sure our listeners do the same thing where you like you don't quite make it and you like right. bang your hip on the on the on the counter or more often probably you bash a toe <laughs> right. against the wall or something and you're like oh and that you know <clears throat> not good but the same kind of thing right like you want the goblins to the same kind of situation where they're like i'm running towards the player and I'm, hopefully i can just kind of nudge a little bit away from the spikes and then go around them and then you know victory and uh the fact is is that the Goblins don't update their movement think uh, every single frame. They only do it like every so often. And so yeah. they can still run into the spikes sometimes. Um, yeah. If the timing is correct. And so I don't know how I feel about that necessarily, but it's an interesting kind of side effect. We've been very leery, I think, of just doing everything on the tick just because, you know, working in HTML5 performance is always a concern. And, and you know, I'm sure it's the same with uh, C++ and stuff, but uh, probably not when you're making such basic 2D games like we are. Uh, but basically, the way that I was setting up the systems is um, pretty much nothing happens every single tick. There's always a delay, even if it's just like 100 milliseconds, you know? Right. Like not every single tick, maybe like every other kind of thing. So that actually kind of is a nice segue into one of the other problems I wanted to solve, which was that we have a lot of code um, in these AI behaviors that says, you know, oh, add this, basically this cooldown to an entity, which is a state, which is yeah. 
something I won't necessarily get into right now, but we have this subsystem called states where you can assign, you know, oh, this entity has the stun state for 10 seconds. This entity has a frozen state for five seconds. This entity right. has a knockback for three seconds, whatever it happens to be. It's just almost an arbitrary string uh, with a time attached to it. But we've been using this state system as a interval. So we'll say like, okay, do some movement AI code and then add the move cooldown state for three seconds or and one and a half that'll seconds. That'll say like no other move code can do anything for a while. Right. And that's useful for when, say, like you attack a goblin. The goblin takes some damage, gets the stun state, and then receives some not ba- knock back velocity. And so the goblin starts like, whoa, like, you know, traveling backwards. And the move code, because it has a cooldown, will be like, I'm not doing anything. I'm just chilling for a bit, and then the knock uh, knockback will expire, and then the stun state goes away, and then the move cooldown is gone, and the movement code picks up again. Right. Well, that's not the only way to handle that particular case. Um, right. But there's seventeen thousand ways to handle that particular <laughs> right. case, right? <laughs> but the thing is, is that I feel like uh, the behavior system should give us more control over these things that we want to happen on an interval, besides us having to manually add a state check for the existence of that state, and then don't do anything each frame. Right. Uh, so I've kind of been building in more of like an interval. And so there are, you know, you can define intervals for an entity and say, like, I want a move timer to fire every 250 milliseconds. And oh, then each of the behavior systems that are attached to that entity will receive a move timer interval every so often. So uh, is that part of the state system now, or is that something else? No, that's part of the behavior system. I see. So the behavior system allows you to say, it's very simple. All you'd say is like, I want to define a move timer every 250 milliseconds. And then the behavior system says, okay, great. Every 250 milliseconds, I'm going to call a method on your behavior functionality called, you know, move timer. Yeah. And so, you know, in effect, the concept is the same in that the move code only gets executed, you know, every 250 milliseconds. Yeah. Um, but it kind of just takes that really common use case and abstracts it away a little bit without having to do everything manually. So yesterday you were kind of excited and we were chatting. Uh, you were saying that you were working on this stuff and uh, you said, you see, I think you swore you'd be done yesterday. Is that correct? <laughs> no, how's that going? Uh, it's going well. Um, I replicated most of the functionality in Skirmish with the exception of like um, like healing and necromancing and stuff. Right. Um, so I still need to work on that part. Um, the movement code is really solid hmm. uh, at this point. It's got the fleeing and the chasing and the surrounding and all that stuff built in. And largely, I just took all the code you had, like the surrounding code that you wrote. I just kind of took it wholesale out of the system that it was living in. <laughs> yeah. And I put it into this little kind of micro <laughs> behavior component. I see. Okay. I thought you were going to be like, it was great because I just took all the system code that you wrote, I burned it in a fire, and then I wrote it all from scratch. It was fantastic. It was good. No, it like, really oh, wasn't okay. my goal necessarily. I just wanted to modularize things. You wanted to capitalize on the fine work that I've been doing. Yes. Top-notch stuff. I do. I do. <laughs> uh, we should compare notes, actually. You should show me some code and stuff. Um, maybe, even, maybe even before it's ready. I don't know. Big... Because I had a behavior system, like I mentioned earlier, uh, I, I thought I'd actually brought it into Skirmish, but uh, it was the kind of thing that I wrote once in a prototype and I kind of liked it. And then I was working on the next prototype and I was like, you know, I, I use systems pretty much as you can tell from the code. Like I use systems for everything until I don't, uh, I so guess until can't. I can't, uh, either can't yeah. or like what a pain it would be or the code gets to like, you know, 
the best systems I think that are in the code right now anyway are the ones that do like one damn thing. You know, it does like a, I think attacker is pretty good because it's like, hey, is there a player in front of me? No, that's cool. I'll just hang for a bit. Oh, there's a player right in front of me. I'm going to swing my sword. That's it. That's all it does, you know. But the other ones like, oh man, when I was um I was implementing goblin magician, the concept was this goblin would disappear like a, you know, do a warning like a like a magic charge up like whoop, and then disappear, and then reappear someone else uh, somewhere else. And then uh, whenever it had you on axis, it would shoot a fireball at you. And just the warning and the disappearing and the reappearing and all that crap was like much more than one thing. So that system was like (laughs) convoluted and and over-engineered and had way too many like toggles and it was really flaky and buggy, especially with regards to stuff like, you know, he's charging up and and you swipe the goblin and then you you interrupt the charge. Like, (laughs) I hated that code to death. I ended up scrapping it because it was like... um, I didn't think it was all that. It wasn't that great of an idea. Like, you know, you wouldn't see that monster and be like, wow, most original. Like, it's basically, uh, it's like uh, Wizrobe from Zelda. Like, okay. And it was, yeah, it was way too complicated. So it was taking too long. And I was like, nope, axe. Gets the axe to the head. Yeah. And um, I think you actually did a pretty good job with making the systems pretty modular. But we still have systems like, um, like your assist system. It looks for a target. It decides based on some factors whether to chase that target or run away from that target. Mm. And that's really, I think, doing three things in one, right? You that's want... how I do it! <laughs> I'm not you know, trying to knock your code or anything. I'm, I'm actually doing like... my taxes right now while we're podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> I would not put that beyond me. But the nice thing about you know, separating those things is that if you make target acquisition a very kind of modular thing then then your chasing component doesn't really need to care where the target comes from right yeah like you could have enemies chasing the player you could have enemies chasing other enemies um you can have you know enemies chasing a piece of meat like it doesn't really matter yeah um if you just give certain and en- uh, certain enemies a different targeting function or targeting piece, yeah. and then they can chase whatever. And then that chasing code is just this really small, like the chase code now is really just, hey, do I have a target? Okay, great. Let me make a beeline for that target. Yeah. Um, I, I think the reason I did the flea and the same code is because with the power of vectors, you can literally just say, you know, scale minus one or reverse if there's a method for that. And it's the same damn code, you know? Right. But I understand what you're saying. It's too complicated and... um. I think I also tried that target thing you were talking about at one point. I think I had a system that would just gather targets and it would say, you know, I don't know, uh, radar.target. Like if radar.target dot exists, or uh, <laughs> if it exists, then other systems could look at it and, and uh, act on it. But I, I don't think that made that in there. You actually are probably more familiar with the code than I am at this point because you've just been digging into it and stuff. Right. Taking a bulldozer. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, it's actually more of like a rearrangement than a bulldozer. I can handle that. Yeah. You're moving my cheese. <laughs> Where's my cheese? But your cheese isn't intact. It's just in a different place. Yeah. I didn't eat the cheese. I didn't throw it away. That's good. I can get behind that. <laughs> you just like, you peed on it and rolled around in it and <laughs> got your stink on it. That's right. <laughs> I love uh, that. Another big improvement that I made with this behavior system is that the uh, kind of like the data for a particular entity, you know, so you have these kind of abstract concepts about like, 
okay, a chaser has a target and they chase a target, but where is yep. that target stored, right? Like each yeah. entity needs to have its own kind of configuration uh, of local data so it knows what its particular settings are. What am I chasing? How far away from it do I need to be? Blah, blah, blah. Right. And uh, one of the other things I did is I kind of, I, I pulled that all into a shared like data structure. Um, whereas previously, um, each of our like scripting systems or scripting chunks in a wizard's lizard had their own particular data associated with them. Right. So it would be like, okay, there's this behavior called chaser and chaser has all these particular properties. Um, in the new setup, the behaviors are much smaller and more modular and they all have access to a shared data configuration per entity. Yeah. Uh, this reminds me of attack stacks. Uh, attack stats is a, along the same lines of what you were talking about. Right. So um, basically there are some systems where you don't even need any data, right? You'll say like, you know, uh, uh, gravity. Maybe gravity's constant. And you'll just say this thing's affected by gravity or it's not. And it's almost Boolean at that point. So you'll still have your component on your entity called gravity, but you might not need any values there. So it's an empty object or just whatever. The system knows it exists, doesn't need any data and just does stuff to that entity, right? In other cases, you'll have some data that you want. And a lot of cases, let's say there's like the goblin archer. It has an archer component. Okay. And just stuff like, you know, uh, do I look for my opponent on axis? Like, what's my cooldown phase? How fast do I shoot an arrow? Like, what kind of arrow do I shoot? All that kind of crap. Uh, but then there's other systems that are very samey. And you'll have one like attacker where it's, uh, or like melee, let's say, where it's it's like the same kind of thing, but different. But your stats are pretty much identical. You know, the only difference is like I'm not summoning an arrow, which travels and has velocity. I'm summoning an attack area, which just kind of sits there and hurts anything nearby. But the data is exactly the same. So at one point, I think it was around the time when, because uh, weirdly, Goblin Archer was the, or was it? I'm getting confused at this point. But basically, there was two entities that were doing very similar things. And then rather than kind of duplicating that data across components, kind of took them out and put them into attack stats. And attack stats is a component that'll be on the entity, but there is no system to back it up. There's no attack stats system that's like, hey, that exists, I'm going to do some stuff. It's used by other systems like a, you know, attacker and archer. Right, and that's kind of, my approach is to kind of taking that to an extreme, whereas all data shared between AI behaviors just lives in this one place. Yeah, and uh, and that way, like the targeting and everything can just be operated on by any of the behaviors you decide to attach to a particular entity. Yeah, man, I'm uh, after this podcast. I'm I'm uh, looking forward to seeing some code and uh, maybe doing some uh, you know knowledge share kind of stuff. Uh, I'd like to actually take a look too at the uh, the behavior code that I'd written. I'm sure it's not as nice as yours. And plus, you have the benefit of like you did some serious studying on um, behavior trees. Which, like, I'm at the point where I don't want to see them in this game. It's just too complicated. <laughs> this game is too simple. But I'm sure, like we were talking about with, you know, the New Zealand trip, there's stuff that you learn, the stuff that comes out of it. You know, you might not be implementing behavior trees, but you might be like, I took just this little slice of right. behavior trees, this one thing that was done really well, and I applied that to a simpler stack. And that's actually, I mean, it, it's completely accurate because one of the things about behavior trees, at least in the implementations that I've looked at, is that they do have this very shared, you know, idea of like here's the state of, of this behavior tree and all of the little behavior tree nodes that do things can operate on anything in that state yeah i like that it's convenient yeah um i still think that behavior trees you know behavior trees 
do one thing really well that the system doesn't do that well yet, which would be kind of allowing you to route behavior, you know, because you don't always want all of these little subsystems to be firing at once, right? And there's actually a a case I'm about to run into, and the way I've solved it right now is it's kind of like a stack that can be interrupted. And Mm. so you can have behaviors on top, like the attacking behavior uh, can basically say, once I'm done executing, don't execute anything more. And so the the movement behaviors below that on the stack just don't Mm. happen while he's trying to attack. Right. Uh, Because they just don't need to. Um, But in a behavior tree, you know, it'd be more of like this tree traversal thing where it's like at the top node, you say, am I attacking? Yes. And if I'm attacking, then you go down this branch. And if I'm not attacking, then you go down this other branch where I look for a target and try to get next to him. Yeah. Um, but really what we need is, is a way to facilitate that basic concept, which is, you know, having certain behaviors kind of allow the code or the, you know, that behavior to branch or suppress, uh, other behaviors that you don't want to occur simultaneously. Right. So. Yeah. Stuff interesting complicated. stuff. Well, that's cool. Um, as always, let us know if you have any questions, because uh, uh, <laughs> Jeff is especially the kind of person you'd be like, hey, Jeff, I've got an entity component question. And he's like, sweet. <laughs> like frothing <laughs> at the mouth. Oh. Yeah. You can't wait to talk about it. So uh, do let us know. You can always email us at hello at losttickedgames.com. Uh, and I think that, uh, I'm not sure what we're talking about next week, probably get to Project Skirmish a little more, because uh, like this was our first, or last week, I guess, was our first week of uh, of dev on it. So we're getting kind of ramped up, and we're going to start hitting that really hard um, pretty soon. But never fear, it's not just going to be the bottomless pit of uh, changelog. We're also going to talk about, uh, we're going to have a monetization episode pretty pretty soon, like how to make games and how to make money with those games, and all the various, like so many different ways you can make money with games. So and we then, keep- um Talking about how we're going to talk about Project Skirmish, but I think that, you know, we're trying to <laughs> actually move that more towards our weekly videos, you know? Like, the weekly video is the place to go for, hey, I want to know what's happening with Project Skirmish, and I can see it live on YouTube. Yeah, and, see uh, some gameplay. And it's, uh, it's actually better than just kind of talking about it on the podcast, so... I think it's unavoidable talking about it on the podcast, like, you know, because the Entity Component stuff wasn't necessarily a question at all about our current game. It was just a question about some abstract Entity Component stuff, and uh, it's always going to be rele- relevant to what we're working on or, or, or relative to the project that we're working on, so it's going to be, you know, pretty common that we're like, oh, and that reminds me of Project Skirmish, and uh actually our goal also is i think by february uh we want to be talking about this game actually from like a promotional perspective and it's no longer like the project code name it's going to be a real game we're going to be trying to you know get interest in it get people watching on youtube get people excited about uh when it comes out later this year and uh, it'll be a real thing wow that's only two weeks away february oh i know yeah we got some work to do uh we could you know we can push (laughs) we can push deadlines as needed but uh we need to move quickly on this one Yep. Um, we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, how to finish a game, which I think is going to be uh, also, again, very relevant to uh, Project Skirmish. And uh, I also like things like, you know, how do you get back into a project? You know, like, let's say you've had a project sitting there for three months. Like, I think a lot of times um, people just want to scrap it. But how do you get back into it? Like, topics like that. Yeah. Um, we should also talk about uh, just no, kind of shipping. We're, we're not doing that. Focus. Because that's something <laughs> I've been interested in. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Because uh, there's really like three parts. There's like starting a game, there's being in the thick of the game and like your, you know, <laughs> weeds are up to your neck and you're like, help, I don't want to be here anymore. 
And and then that's separate from finishing. You know, like these are like three major giant steps that are all really difficult. And uh, that's another reason that we want to launch Skirmish before we start thinking about the next game, which we hope will be a lot bigger, is because, you know, we have not launched a game since <laughs> like June of last year, like we've talked about. So we really need to get that practice again, you know, like flex those shipping muscles. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually kind of interested in doing an update to a Wizards Lizard to kind of flex the shipping muscles. I think that that might yeah. be an interesting way to approach it. You know, do an update to a Wizards Lizard because it's easy to ship, right? Yes. Just bam, knock it out. Then do Project Skirmish, which is a bigger endeavor. Ship yeah. that, and then do an even bigger game mid-year. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Well, I think that's uh, all we have for this week. Um, you know. If you like us, rate us up, share us with a friend. We are going to play you out with yet another song from Joshua Morse's latest Waveform 5. This one's called Cityscape. Ship it.
Some horse is okay. Excess horse is unacceptable. 